0: Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life.
1: Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast. I'm Cliff Taylor, standing in this week for Kieran Hancock. On today's show, looming international tax changes will be a big setback for Ireland's relationship with multinationals. But how great is the danger? And how can we adapt to these changes and continue to attract foreign direct investment here while also developing other parts of the economy? To discuss this, I'll be joined later by Chief Economist at IBEC, Gerard Brady, and Martina Lawless, Associate Research Professor at the ESRI and a member of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. But first, Laura Slattery is in studio for a roundup of some of the week's other stories. Laura, one of the big stories this week is the slide in Sterling. What is going on?
2: That's right, we had four days of quite steep losses in sterling. It's steadied again now today on Wednesday but it's really notable that uh, currency markets I guess have woken up to the fact that the rhetoric coming out of the new UK government uh, is, is kind of worrying to say the least. In yeah. fact it's 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 notable for its, its lack of coherence. Um, on the one hand we have um, Boris Johnson saying the chance of a no deal Brexit is a million to one which I don't think that our odds, he's uh, formally offering, but Jeez. on the other hand, uh, Michael we'll Gove says, we'll yeah. "Yeah, well, Paddy Power will only give you 64. So, yeah, if you get a million to one, that'd be great." But yeah, Michael Gove is saying that uh, the government is working on the assumption of a no deal. So this has, has caused a few days now of rocky, rocky uh, moves on uh, sterling. It's it's declined against both the dollar and the euro, and. Uh, the other thing is, I suppose, that's notable about it is that people don't, you know, people don't think that's it. You know, there could be further more to fall here.
1: Sure. So fears of a no deal are sending the currency lower. It's been around kind of 91 and a half, heading up towards 92 at one stage area this week. Mm. How low? How low, how low might it go, according to the market experts, if, if we really seem to be heading towards a no deal?
2: Well, we're not, I don't think we're even back to the weakness that was there immediately after the referendum result three years ago. So I guess you, you could say it could go at least that to that point but at the moment, it's still said, it's a, a risk of a no deal and, and, um, rather than the reality of one and that's, I suppose, that's when we, we'll see the real proof. Um, one of the things this week was a, a central bank official here, Mark Cassidy was saying, he's it's just, it's just pointing out, it's not for fully priced in. Um, but I think like if if they play this brinkmanship game right up to October thirty first, you know, if it's if it's leave the EU do or die by October thirty first, which is what Boris Johnson is saying then I think, you know, it's, we could be seeing a, a collapse here. And the issue, I suppose, is whether or not that then that is enough of a crisis to trigger a rethink because for, uh, you know, for Britain, the cost of living is going to go up. You know, it's all very well, you know, Brexiteers talking about uh, competitive exports and, you know, take a patriotic staycation so you don't have to, uh, you know, pay extra for your holiday money. Uh, but if imports are also becoming more expensive to Britain, then they're going to suffer. Uh, ordinary people at the shops, uh, half their food is imported. It's just going to uh, could be, the, in fact, the crisis that that sort of forces uh, <laughs> forces somebody to say, "Hang on a minute, now, what, what the hell is all this?"
1: Yeah, you would expect the warnings are going to ramp up, all right, and very very interesting to see the politi- political impact of that. But here we also had the central bank warning that this could be serious economically for for Ireland.
2: Yeah, I mean, this has gone beyond worrying into really grim Um, their latest uh, warning is that there could be 100,000 Irish jobs lost from a no deal Brexit you know given that the workforce is 2.3 million 100,000 is a lot of of jobs and it's also significantly worse than previous projections I mean even a few months ago the SRI was saying 80,000 from a no deal Brexit and the government about 85,000 so it's just that number is going up and up and obviously agri-food sector is one of the ones on the front line but it's not the only.
1: And notable that they said as many as thirty-four thousand of the jobs could go in the ver- in, in the very first year after no an odious Brexit. Mm. But the central bank also in the news this week for other reasons.
2: Yeah, I mean this is a story that's just going on and on, which which is always a bad sign. Mm. Um, the, uh, the appointment of the new governor there, uh, Gabriel McClough it's, it's still in the headlines because two former governors of the central bank, the recently departed uh, Philip Lane and then Patrick Conaghan, have apparently privately raised concerns. And in Lane's case, it was about you know how this the management from uh, how to manage this crisis that was have a controversy I should say about his handling of a budget leak in New Zealand uh, shortly before he left his role there and. Um, in Hun's case we're not sure exactly about the nature of his concerns but in general there's been a lot of people saying hmm, hang on a minute about this because um, it, he was not expected to get the job. It was expected to be the deputy governor uh, Sharon Donnery Some people have saying, "Well, uh, he's not an economist. His, his experience isn't directly in the eurozone area." The European Central Bank has apparently officials there have also sort of raised concerns, which is uh, quite unusual. Now, I don't think, think there's been any, you know, there's been denials of any kind of a sort of official interventions or anything but you know there i think there's a feeling of surprise as well that um that that uh, the government here would have um gone against Sharon Donnery when she was in fact in the running for a more senior position at the ECB itself she was down to the last two in that job and then suddenly she didn't get this job and there's this uh, other individual who whose experience is maybe not not quite as strong in some areas
1: Yeah, I guess he would have a lot of of experience in in management and less in economics and monetary policy than she would. So, uh, interest It was certainly an interesting choice. I mean, they have been
2: defending their choice. Sure. uh, Yeah, it's important to say, I
1: suppose, that he he did come through, uh, there was an official process, uh, albeit that, as the lobbying suggests, the final appointment is, is a matter for the minister and the government.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they would not be too impressed with <laughs> uh, talks of uh, private concerns being raised by... Sure. But, but but these are very, you know, respected people, so sure. uh, it's it's slightly, I, I guess, embarrassing is the word.
1: Indeed, but not going back now, Mr Macloof takes up, I think, on the 1st of September, so it will be interesting... To watch that one and to watch his first uh, moves when he lands here among, amongst which will be uh, deciding the mortgage rules and, yeah. and the annual review of the mortgage uh, rules.
2: Not much of a honeymoon period, I imagine.
1: No, I think you're right. Now, finally, um, we'll, 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 resist, <laughs> we'll resist the, t- the close shave. Uh, um,
2: it's a sharp nick. Sharp I've nick. seen some else there. Yeah. yeah, Procter yeah. & Gamble
1: have... Uh, taking a write-down on their holding in Gillette. Tell us about that. It's an
2: 8 billion write-down, so you don't get an 8 billion dollar write-down every day of the week. So Gillette, I mean, they haven't actually owned it for too long. They bought it, I think, in 2005 or something. But Mm -hmm. it's a 118-year-old brand and it's maybe showing its age a little bit. But they said the main reason for the write-down was currency fluctuations. But there's also a problem with um, uh, just newer, younger, cheaper uh, rivals and another interesting trend, which is that just men are shaving less. is the I millennial men that. like a good beard, mm. and they don't just don't need to spend as much money on the hipsters. The hipsters raiders. hit you less. They have, I'm afraid. So there's these two new companies in particular called Dollar Shave Club and Harry's, and both of which have since, you know, they were startups. Okay. Um, but they've both been taken over by pretty big personal grooming companies. Uh, Dollar Shave Club is now owned by Procter & Gamble's rival, Unilever. And Harry's has recently been bought by Wilkinson Sword owner, Edgewell. Uh, which is kind of I don't know how Wilkinson Sword are doing, but uh, sure. <laughs> uh, certainly um, Harry's and Dollar Shave Club are, are on the rise, and, and Gillette is, is is being is being hit by this. It's no longer the best that every man can get.
1: <laughs> right, Laura Slattery. On that note, thank you very much. Only twenty nine percent of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to IrishLifeEmpower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. A major shake-up in the tax rules for big multinationals is being discussed at the OECD in Paris. There may be outline agreement on this by the end of the year. But what impact will these changes have on foreign direct investment into Ireland? Just how serious is this for the Irish economy and how can the government prepare for it? Here to provide some answers to these questions are Martina Lawless of the ESRI and IBEX, Gerard Brady. Martina Lawless, how do we judge the importance of the multinationals to the Irish economy? A lot of debate about this over the years. If you look at industrial figures from the industrial sector, export figures, suggest they have a huge huge dominant contribution but other data maybe gives a more balanced picture how should how should we uh, how should we
3: look at that I think the best sort of real indicator of how big the multinationals are in terms of their contribution to the Irish economy is really to look at the number of people they employ. Um, So the most recent CSO numbers suggest that about one in seven workers, so well over 300,000 people, are working for a foreign-owned company. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a real sign of actual substantive activity here. Um, Obviously, the financial data then gives you numbers that they're nearly 90% of exports, 40-something percent of exports 40 something percent of uh, value added. But those numbers are difficult to get a real handle on because of the complications of how much are they importing in terms of intellectual property and how much of their sure. profits are they sending back out of the country. Sure. Um, but the, the employment numbers are kind of real on the ground. And they're generally quite well paid, highly skilled jobs. There's quite a premium yeah. to working the in CSO a multinational. Data show that as well, and the CSO they? data show that as well. So In so that sense, they're, they're contributing very strongly to the Irish economy.
1: Okay, so that figure... Includes industrial companies, service companies, financial companies as well. I presume
3: financial companies as well, and also a number of retail chains and so on that are, okay. are
1: here. For and I suppose fair to say, um, the idea are always talking about the spin-off employment. So fair to say that that activity creates jobs and activity elsewhere in the economy too. They, it they don't operate as an island. The multinational. Yeah, we
3: we don't have a great sense of how many kind of extra jobs get created, but there's certainly every. Large factory or every large service industry will create more jobs by bringing find money and employment into an area. Um, the evidence on great spillover effects to Irish productivity is fairly mixed. So it seems more to do with links to you know their employees spending money in the area rather than them integrating very tightly in terms of having Irish suppliers. Sure.
1: Um, yeah, possibly fair to say that the uh, the initial talk that a lot of Irish companies would, would spin off and, and, and
3: be suppliers to these companies it hasn't quite worked out. That really has been kind of one area, I think, of industrial policy that hasn't seen the results that people really hoped for. There was, there was a lot of ambition in the early days of having a lot of FDI here, that it would create kind of high-tech ste- high Irish Um, businesses to set up and to learn from the multinationals and that doesn't seem to have happened really in any great um, level of detail. But these
1: are still big players big contributors and big contributors to growth I presume as
3: well. Exactly Um, and in particularly in terms of during the financial crisis um, when all of the domestic consumption and domestic investment had really tanked what kept the Irish economy going was that exports continued to grow and to contribute to output um, because they were more isolated from the particular domestic shock that had happened. And looking forward to potentially the next domestic shock in terms of what Brexit does, that's going to be probably quite focused on Irish-owned firms as well. So you again see the multinationals as being maybe not immune from it, but certainly relatively less affected and um, by any loss of the UK market than Irish-owned companies. OK.
1: Gerry Brady, what's your perspective on the importance of the big multinationals here? Look, I, I think
0: Martina said it. Uh, they're, they're a huge uh, contributor both in terms of employment, but if you look at wages as well, they probably pay on average about or close to twice as much as an Irish indigenous exporter does. So the wage, the wage piece that they bring in, and there's a good regional spread as well, um, probably different to some other countries who have had big multinationals or who have benefited from globalisation. It's been heavily urban focused. In Ireland, you have several centres around the country that have multinationals. So it's important to a lot of towns uh, and a lot of kind of medium sized towns as well. So without them, we're not a very, very strong economy. If you look at a lot of the data, particularly when it comes to kind of wages, employment and some of those kind of real numbers that households feel.
1: But safe to say that some of the rules at least affecting these big players are starting to change and in particular, there's a uh, process, discussions underway at the OECD uh, to reform corporate taxation, which has been a significant factor in attracting companies here. Just explain to us the key couple of points that uh, that, that, that that brings.
0: Yeah, so since 2013, there's been this ongoing change in global corporate taxation. Essentially, the system was set up. For a kind of Fordist manufacturing, someone was making widgets and then exporting them abroad yeah. system. And and we've moved on from that now. So 2013 to 2015, we had BEPS one, which basically made everyone's base in terms of their corporate tax. So, How you so pay BEPS is
1: the name for the OECD it, it, process. It's the name for the OECD process. Base erosion process. And, pro- and profit shifting, basically to tackle tax avoidance.
0: And, and that tackled the tax avoidance side of it. The debate now has moved on to this second stage, which is about where you pay tax. Uh, a lot of it came out of this digital tax discussion. So discussion mainly about the tech companies, but it's now much broader. It's pretty much every company is now caught in this discussion. And there's two questions. One is this, what they're calling pillar one, which is about good question about where companies pay tax, so it's do you pay the tax in the country that you're producing from, which is Ireland for example, or do you pay it where your customer is? And the end point of that discussion looks like larger countries with bigger consumer markets are going to get a bigger share of the of the tax base.
1: Okay, so this mainly relates to, comp- relates to companies selling online, so the big players would have online platforms in France, Germany, Britain, huge numbers of customers, huge amount of activity. But at the moment, they're paying tax in Ireland. But that 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 may may change in future. And, and it could be broader than that, right? So
0: it, it could be anyone who's marketing in another jurisdiction. In effect, could get could get hit by this. So, for example, if you're a pharma company marketing abroad, your your sales might uh, might be in Germany or somewhere else. You might be producing in Ireland. You're paying your tax at the moment in Ireland and in the US where your where your IP is, um, and and you end up paying more tax. We think maybe twenty percent of the profit base in Ireland could go. Abroad, in effect, could could basically be redistributed to to market countries, to to big uh, consumer so economies. So
1: that's a significant potential hit to our corporation tax yeah, revenue. Yeah,
0: and it's the side of this next step of of the corporate tax, global corporate tax reform, that we'd probably be worst or, or least worried about. Despite okay. um, that, that financially. Uh, like, like we think, you know, it could cost somewhere between one and three billion for the government. Okay. But if you look at the first stage of BEPS, everyone thought Ireland would be hit when they closed yeah. down the tax havens. But actually, we've benefited hugely. We've gone from taking four billion a year to 10 billion a year. We think cumulatively since 2015, we've taken in unexpected corporate tax, about 14 billion. Mm. Um, and because of that, if we go from 4 billion to 10 and then we go back to 7 or 8 uh, we're still up yeah. across the whole process still up in
1: that terms yeah now there's a second bit to the yeah this OECD process
0: as well uh, the second bit is that is the really worrying one so this is a discussion that has a huge amount of momentum now probably people thought there wouldn't be momentum behind this but the discussion started off about global minimum corporate tax rates um so basically this is se-
1: setting a baseline for the for a minimum rate that all companies must pay and on their profits.
0: It's, it's tax harmonisation in effect. And we've, we've been afraid of this for the last 20 years in Ireland. Um, but it was mainly in Europe we were discussing it. Uh, France and, and a number of other countries, Italy and, and Spain, were pushing it. But smaller countries like Ireland, Sweden, Denmark all had a veto in the process. Now that it's at the OECD, we've seen two things change. One is that we no longer have a veto. So we can't just say, no, we have to play ball. And so it's kind of power politics. The big countries will decide the outcome. And the second thing that's happened is the United States has now got on side. The US government has got on side with global minimum tax. And so has the German government, who are kind of our friend within Europe. They sat on the fence for a long number of years. So it really looks like this is going to happen. And when we talk about rates, we've seen Pascal Sanaman in the Irish Times uh, this week talk about uh, talk about 12.5% as a possible rate, uh, a minimum rate. Uh, we've seen Chip Parker, who runs the US tax uh, tax for the US government, uh, talk about twelve and a half percent at a recent OECD conference, so this is really aimed at ireland um and and, and it's uh, it's a big threat
1: mm. Martina, how serious is that are these kind of developments for for Ireland? do you think tax is obviously one of the big reasons why companies come here but the experts say there are other reasons as well jobs favorable environment political stability mm. all, I, I, all those things
3: I think you can't deny that the- tax rate has been a pretty attractive part of the overall Irish package. It's not the only thing in Ireland that attracts uh, multinationals to locate here. Um, Particularly when you're looking at US multinationals, they're looking for a well-educated workforce. Um, Historic links are important. The fact that it's an English-speaking country is important. Um, The fact obviously that it has access as a platform for the whole European market is extremely important. Um, And it's an area where Brexit could cause some other companies to relocate here. Um, it's difficult to say how big an impact um, this would have. Um, as Jared was saying, there was an expectation that the first pillar of BEPS, BEPS would take a lot of corporate tax away from Ireland. Mm-hmm. But what actually happened was because the rules were changed in a way that incentivized companies to align where they paid their profits with where they had substantive activity, mm-hmm. they actually moved a lot of the profits and a lot of the intellectual property to Ireland. So Ireland sort of unexpectedly became a beneficiary um, of that kind of harmonisation of rules. Um, Certainly a minimum global tax rate, if it's higher than Ireland's current tax rate, would have a a very negative impact. Um, Particularly in terms of attracting new FDI, I think most of the companies that are here are here are reasonably embedded. They have large kind of employment structures. But in terms of attracting new FDI, and it's important when dealing with high-tech investment in a country that there is a continual inward flow. You can't kind of say we have a lot of multinationals here and kind of rest on your laurels And um, for that. It needs to be a constant okay, process. So we have
1: a 12.5% rate now, say the rate we set at 15% or whatever companies would pay half percent here, but would have to pay a top-up in their home
0: jurisdiction? Is that to, how it would to work? Top-up either in their home jurisdiction or where their customers are. So they'd have to right. pay a top-up somewhere, here. but not here. Right. So someone else gets that tax. And I, I think, going back to that point, is tax important? I suppose if you look at Ireland versus other countries in Northern Europe, in particular, who we compete with, and, and probably Singapore. So the Dutch, uh, Danes, Swedes, the UK, mm. and Singapore, probably the countries that we talk to multinationals when they're investing, they're going, you're in a group with These countries, and we're looking at them, all of them have the advantages we have. They all have a lot of English speaking people, good education systems. They all have good standards of living and quality of life. Many of them might have better uh, quality of life in some aspects like public transport, for example, Uh, housing cheaper. Um, So we're then competing on a number of fronts where we might not have as big an advantage as we have with tax. I think tax is the place, and, and, and particularly for high value investment, one of the things that would come under real threat from this reform is the R&D tax credit, which is really important for the next generation. Uh, As Martina said, a lot of the companies are already very well embedded here. But if you look back at the history of FDI in Ireland, we were making shoes back in the 70s. That stuff went to China. You upgrade, you went into computer manufacturing. Now you're into services and high value and the computer Mm -hmm. manufacturing is gone. The next step up is going to be more difficult to attract if we don't have tax in our armory and if we're not up to speed on all these other... Uh, things that we've talked about that we're not really at the races on at the moment, or we're we're okay but not great. Okay,
1: and what's what has I been calling on the government to do about this? Because for years, at around the EU table, we've aligned with Britain. Everyone knew we'd a veto. Uh, there's been a lot of talk at EU level about tax harmonisation. There's been some moves in terms of compliance and some moves in line with the OECD process, but really it hasn't happened at an EU level. But but you're saying we don't have a veto
0: now. We don't we don't have a veto now. I th- I think there's a there's a really strong chance if you listen to the to the tables that we set at at the OECD in Paris where this is this work is going mm-hmm. on. People are really really confident, particularly on on Pillar Two. There's still fights over Pillar One because it okay. decides who gets ta- the tax. Okay, so
1: Pillar Two is the anti-avoidance P- bit. Pillar Two uh, is, the, is, is the minimum, minimum tax Minimum
0: corporate uh, tax rate. rate. Yeah. Um, yeah. If if we see that go through, and w- and we think there's a really strong chance now that that will happen. Before the end of this year, there'll be an agreement in principle to do it. The G7, uh, the the big group of global countries, agreed recently that they're going to move forward with this. Mm -hmm. There will be global agreement on it probably by December. And then next year will be spent haggling around the rate. Yeah. If the rate ends up being bad, uh, the thing the Irish government will need to do is it will need to improve on all the other areas of the of the of the model. Um, so, for example, the r tax credit is gone uh, in, in that circumstance. If it's if it's fifteen percent minimum in each jurisdiction, okay. um, so you'll need to invest more in innovation, direct investment in innovation, public investment in innovation. Uh, you'll need to invest more in infrastructure, the quality of life issues that attract key workers here, okay. and that's going to be a big challenge. And you're going to need to fund higher education in a way that we haven't now the tax we've already got this 14 and a half billion we haven't done that with we've put it into current spending it's been almost all spent about 11 and a half billion of it has been spent in supplementary estimates overruns at the end of the year so there's been this unstructured unplanned use of this money to fill holes uh, the next five years any overruns we get in corporate tax any more tax we get in we're saying basically you're going to have to put this away and use it over the next couple of years to invest in innovation education and and then the uh, the quality of life issues that will be the next step for the business model.
1: Martina what's your perspective on that do we need to start squirreling away the corporate tax money or is that a realistic thing for the government to do given all the other demands that it faces?
3: I think it is a realistic thing for the government to do Um so sort of a- also a member of the, the Fiscal Advisory Council and our advice on this is that yeah. unexpected sort of windfall revenues that are potentially, you know, not going to be sustainable in the long run, mm-hmm. that it's a good idea to have these set aside to actually try to smooth, basically government spending and avoid very sharp cuts in spending um, whenever there is a recession um, or whenever another shock comes to the economy. Um, so I think that's certainly something that the government should be thinking seriously about um, mm-hmm. and it has been setting up something of a rainy day fund, although Too small, it's a little bit says. small and not really counter-cyclical enough. Yeah. It's it's a fixed amount every year, rather than saying it's a percentage of okay. unexpected revenues. Um, IFAC doesn't make any recommendations on what spending should be on, mm. um, so I'm going to shift back to being from the ESRI. yes, that's allowed. But... I think education really has to be, if if you're talking about spending that will continue to attract investment, um, education and higher education are really important. So where are are the gaps there, do you think? Well, the higher education budget got cut pretty sharply during the recession. And while spending on other services and other areas of government have generally at least recovered, if not kind of gone beyond that, um, those spending cuts in higher education haven't really been reversed. Um, and so the sort of pupil you know lecture ratio in, in Irish universities has fallen quite dramatically. Um, there's still a lot of limits to hiring permanent um, staff in place. Um, and what's important in that is that it, it is having an effect on how Irish universities are performing. We see regular updates in the Irish Times on where Irish universities are in international league mm. tables. Some people and say those tables are... There are issues with those tables yeah. in terms of how the things are compared across countries. So you certainly wouldn't worry about kind of you know, one point up, one sure. point down from but the to trend year to year. But the trend hasn't been good. And in terms of that trend, it's not something that's going to hit, you know, this year's third level budget or this year's university ranking isn't going to immediately cause foreign investment in Ireland to collapse overnight. But in terms of something of a long-term kind of structural Mm. sort of foundation stone of the economy in terms of the overall package that attracts multinationals, it is a very important one. Um, And some recent work uh, by some colleagues of mine in the SRI has shown that investment in other areas of infrastructure, in particular areas like broadband, really only bring a good economic benefit if they're combined with an educated workforce. Okay. There's no point in spending huge amounts of money rolling out broadband if there's nobody's going to use it at the other end. Okay. So education sort of has a complementary effect on all of the other types of um, investment.
1: Well, I think I'm, I'm right in saying that in terms of second level participation, we're, we're well up the International League. Yeah. Um, possibly some problems in early childhood education but so so we're really talking about are we talking about third level here? I think we're really talking about
3: third level level education the the early school leaving rate in Ireland is one of the lowest across Europe so on, on second level I think the and Results in international comparable scores and testing like yeah. the Pisa studies that where the OECD compare kind of literacy and mathematical um, abilities across countries always shows Ireland to do reasonably well so it's really that the funding gap at the the higher education limit and the continual links between sort of higher education innovation and research with what the innovation that businesses are trying to operationalize and to, to really continue to build the links there between the kind of the public investment in higher education and research there and the investment in uh, research that private companies are, are undertaking
1: Is, are you remember saying this to you, Jared are are the are the big companies saying look the Irish Ireland is starting to fall behind here I I think it's a real what what are you hearing
0: um, when we talk to companies who are investing um, I I know a lot of people say well look those league cables they're blunt instruments they don't Mm. say much but like kind of stethoscopes are important for doctors but they're not very accurate instruments right Um, it's the same thing for multinationals they only have a certain amount of things that they can base an investment on and these are one of the things they are doing base the investment on And, and some of the issues with Irish higher education and those rankings a huge chunk of that is uh, spent per student and then these surveys to do of perception in industry and and we can hear those back In spend per student, as Martina said, it's been cut way down compared to where it was and it's much lower than it is in other northern European countries. So if you benchmark it, we spend a little more than five or six thousand less per student per year than some of the competitor economies we look at. And the other part is this perception piece that if you have a system that has been cut back and, and spending has been cut back for years, eventually people start to go well, we can see that spending has been cut back. This will eventually have to have an impact on on student quality. So they have to make a decision for 10 years or 20 years when they invest. And if they're looking at something where you're under-investing in a system for a long time, it doesn't matter how good our graduates are now. What matters is what's the signal we're sending to companies for 20 years' time. And at the moment, the feedback we're getting is really poor. Where Companies are coming to us where five years ago they could justify it. They could say, look, we're going through austerity, but this will pick up in a few years and it will all be solved. Now you're into four or five years into a recovery, where there has been lots of money spent on different issues. But when it comes to innovation, and when it comes to R and and when it comes to higher education, those budgets haven't come back anywhere near where they need to be, and and we're losing ground every year on other countries who are making the right decisions where we're not.
1: So, is it the quality of this stu- of the students, employees they're they're, they're getting in, or is or is it these kind of longer term research trends that
0: are? I, I think it's both. So. so Any good system needs to be investing in research from basic up to applied, and it needs to be investing heavily in in the student experience as well in terms of graduates. There are are strong studies that show there's a link between the size of classes and the quality of graduates coming out. Uh, It won't affect, as Martina said, graduates coming out in the next two or three years. But what it does is is it undervalues, and and, and I think actually parents in Ireland who are sending their kids to third level are now paying fees in, in, in many cases for it, um, should be worried about this because it, it undervalues their degrees. The further your uh, your um, university slips down the league table, when you go abroad to look for a job, if you, if you go to big companies or multinationals here to look for a job, if your university is way down the league table, they've started to screen for these things. So they screen for your university's reputation. So you're actually undervaluing Irish graduates going out who are good people, who are capable of doing good jobs, but because their university is slipping... Uh, th- that means their reputation is slipping too. So people should be demanding it, but it's way down a list, as you say.
1: How does the government decide where else to invest, Martina? Because there's there's demands for investment in housing, uh, roads, public transport. There's a whole kind of list in the in the government's investment plan, and now higher education. How do how do we rank and prioritise that and, it, it and is organise dif- that properly?
3: It is difficult to prioritise, and obviously everybody will argue for their own kind of particular area first um, and I think that's one of the reasons that it's important to try and keep the capital spending relatively smooth over time rather than to do what we've seen in the past which is big investment and big capital projects when there's some money there then really sharp cutbacks in it because it's easier to cut back in a capital project than on day to day services
0: break
3: so happens for example if, yeah so a lot of it would be obviously. You need to decide what is the most important, but also as long as you have a kind of a committed path of spending that keeps investment going all over the the cycle. Um, perhaps actually have more investment during downturns when there's yeah. more labour. One of the issues at the moment with saying invest more in housing because there's a real shortage of housing um, is that there's also a there's something of a shortage of construction workers because we're nearly at full employment. Um, So it's actually difficult to get a lot of value for money from big investment projects when the economy is actually doing extremely well and and employment is very low. So it's important, therefore, to to really focus on trying to keep that. Uh, In terms of housing in particular, though, um, perhaps slightly contradicts what I just said, that is really important in terms of getting workers here and getting businesses to say, Mm -hmm what are we going to have to pay our workers if we relocate in Ireland? You look at the cost of living and you look at housing um, and it is tipping into, you know, not just that housing is a social concern because people need somewhere to live, but actually becoming a competitiveness threat because of the increase in the cost of living. Um, Coming largely really from housing cost of living in, in other areas in Ireland um, is not so out of line. But the, the increases, the rate of increases in house prices and rents in particular um, are now pushing us kind of really into kind of pressures coming through on, on the wage side as well.
1: OK. Uh, fi- final question, uh, Gerard, the, um As you said, we, we could be heading towards a no deal Brexit government's short of money isn't investment going to be the first thing to be chopped? It, it can't be
0: is is mm. what our view is um, you're going to have to run bigger deficits to, mm. to continue to fund investment and if we continue to see corporate tax like we actually think that we're talking probably 2025 before this corporate tax discussion results in losses probably for Ireland um, because that's when it'll be implemented, or, or maybe 2024. But don't com- uh, into in in just in, 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 in advance? Possibly. In the meantime, though, you're probably going to see more upside than downside in corporate tax. Mm-hmm. You can use that money to kind of smooth that investment cycle, and and you're just going to have to run bigger deficits, because cutting investment uh, when we have a downturn, and particularly steep downturns, has happened every single time that we've had one since the 70s. Yeah. And it's always led to this Uh, problem where we overspend on projects then at the top of the cycle that we don't rebuild uh, our investment quick enough and that we then have these huge investment gaps that and we we don't get quality for for money uh, out of it so so the government can't afford not to invest if if there's a hard brexit and some people will say well they should cut back but uh, they just can't afford it are we are
1: we doomed is history doomed to repeat itself martina isn't isn't that always the way it's been here
3: um, it tends to be the way. I think the the sort of the, the structure at the moment, though, is quite difficult. We're now signed up to European fiscal rules, which kind of yeah. put limits on the extent of deficits. Uh, but part of the focus of those rules is to allow extra spe- spending in downturns. The the um, the way the rules are set up is that spending should track a, an average. Um, or your potential growth rate. So if there's a sudden shock, there is a space just to, to smooth over and to run, run deficits um, to absorb that shock for for some... This might
0: be the first big sense. test of those rules, actually, because there's some worries out there that they're actually pro-cyclical, that the tendency is to reduce your your estimates of potential output mm. in a downturn. And that might actually mean that it'll force countries to run smaller deficits uh, when times are bad than when times are good. So this will be a big test of yeah. those rules.
1: Uh, what People will be shouting at. Pascal Donoghue from all over the place, Martina, looking for money for this industry, that industry, this group, that group.
3: Um, they certainly will. And uh, a lot of it will... The fiscal council
1: may not be happy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> the council will be under pressure as well. But uh, we, fo- we focus very much on we like the, the top line number. Sure. Um, unfortunately, Pascal Donoghue then has the very, very difficult job of deciding how it gets allocated. Yeah. Um,
1: Politically difficult times ahead. Uh, Martina Lawless and Gerard Brady, thank you very much for joining me. OK, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to all our contributors, Jared Brady, Martina Lawless and Laura Slattery. Today's podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan with Rob O'Sullivan on sound. I'm Cliff Taylor. Thanks for listening.